Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. Welcome back to all of our listeners who are academic year driven. Here at the UB School of Social Work, we're looking forward to meeting our newly admitted cohort and to reconnect with our current students. It's too bad there hasn't been anything going on in the world this summer for us to talk about with them, but we'll give it our best try. I'm Peter Sabota. In part two of a two-part podcast, our guests Dr. Clyde Angel, John Sullivan, and Dr. Vincent Starnino continue their discussion related to spiritual injury and military trauma. They discuss the origins and process of creating their program, observing that traditional evidence-based practices did not easily address the existential issues they were hearing about from their clients. Our guests explain how they created the key components of their program. Our guests describe how they address anger and grief in their group and conclude with the feedback they've received from the participants as well as the follow-up they've done. Clyde Angel, Doctor of Ministry, is Chief Chaplain Services at the Richard L. Rodebush VA Medical Center. John Sullivan, LCSW, is retired and formerly an adjunct professor at University of Indiana, Purdue University in Indianapolis, and the University of Indianapolis. Vincent Starnino, LCSW PhD, is Associate Professor at Indiana University School of Social Work. Our guests were interviewed in April of 2017 by our own Dr. Tom Nahinsky, Research Professor here at the UB School of Social Work and a Marine Corps veteran. Okay, thanks Vincent, that was very good and it does lead me to the next question because Again, I can see now why the approach you're working on was developed, but I'll ask Clyde and John to comment on that. And why did you think there was a need for this type of program, and how did it come about? Actually, I started work in Atlanta, Georgia, as a mental health chaplain. That was probably back in 2006. And one of the key roles there was working with veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And at that time, there was actually a, a group treatment that I was a part of, and I would do a couple of spirituality pieces. And then what spun off of that was an aftercare group. And from that, I began to realize some of these deeper existential and spiritual woundings. So move forward, I came to Indianapolis in late 2008, 2009, and John Sullivan comes to my office one day as a new chief chaplain, and he says, uh, hey, do you have any interest in doing a spirituality group with veterans with PTSD? And he introduced, he, he let me know that he was on the uh, trauma team and that was his primary work. And I said, well, actually, I've been doing some of this work, but it isn't, it isn't really formalized. I said, let's, let's kind of just start and do what we do. So we put a group together and to be honest, we really didn't even have an outline. I told John, I said, you know, in Atlanta, I kind of did this just off the cuff and kind of went wherever individuals took us in the group that week. And so we started doing this. And after one or two 
episodes or sessions. And these were at the time we were doing eight week sessions. I told John, I said, you know, we need to develop some kind of a guide, some sort of a, a that we can hand to the veterans so they can kind of follow along with us. And I said, well, why don't you just start taking notes as we're doing this and let's see if there's a pattern. Well, John did that. He did it through one group and we kind of looked at it and he said, and I said, well, let's, let's see if I say the same thing twice. <laughs> and so we did it again, the next group. And interestingly enough, we saw a very clear pattern of where we started with the veteran and the different topics that we would introduce over the eight weeks. And so we eventually developed uh, the search for meaning guide. And that's what kind of moved us forward for about four or five years until we met Vincent and began to formalize this. Now, why did we do that? Not only did I see that in Atlanta, but in talking with John, where he come from as an individual therapist, is we, we were seeing that people would get stuck doing evidence-based therapies in CBT or prolonged exposure. And they would get stuck. And what I think and, and what we see often is they get stuck around these existential and moral woundings and spiritual woundings. And so that was kind of the impetus of the group and, and kind of moved us forward. So, John, I'll let you add to that. Okay. Yes, that's the history of how it progressed. And um, patients, if you'll listen to them, will give you clues of what's really going on, particularly after they trust you. So, when I was hearing statements like, my core is not the same, and when I would say to them, do you feel like damaged goods? And they would say, yes. We're talking about a very deep level, again, of shame and guilt and anger, all the emotions magnified. So they would say, you know, what you told me last session, what you've been telling me, and they were talking about as we went through the manual for evidence-based therapy. It really helped. When I think about this particular thing differently, I feel differently. And then they would add, but I still did something wrong, which alerted me to the fact, number one, we had a lot of unfinished business. And number two, we needed a different approach to getting to that level. I think one of the really good things about our model is that, and we'll probably talk about this more later, that it is co-led by a mental health practitioner, and a chaplain who has interest in doing counseling so that we can get to things from these two different perspectives. And um, sometimes I would be working with somebody and I would just say, look, there's a, a class, a group that you really need to go to. You can continue to see me or not. That's your choice. We can finish up the manual later on. But at this point, in my opinion, you need this intervention. And then sometimes I would get people who had gone to the class first and then started working with me. And it was really interesting to see the impact of this class on their understanding, their gaining meaning and purpose. Based on what you just said, John, I have a question. Because it sounds like that if we were to sequence this, doing the Search for Meaning course first, and then going into the CBT or prolonged exposure, seems like it might be a better way to approach this than potentially doing CBT first and then the search for meaning. Do you think that's a way to go about this, or do you think that it really doesn't matter? This is Clyde. Let me go ahead and get on that, Tom. So this is what we found out, because we were originally drawing mainly from the trauma recovery program, and at that particular time, we would do an orientation. 
and and it, so it was offered as something they could do during or after or whatever. But what ended up happening is I have had over the years we've had people who did it first. We've had people do it in the middle, just like John said, and we've had other people who probably wouldn't have even realized or identified that injury, but after they completed CBT or prolonged exposure, it was like there's still something there. You know, this has been helpful. It's helped reduce my symptomology far as PTSD symptoms, but there's still something there. I still don't feel right. And so I don't think that there is a, an exact formula. I've seen people go through it on the front end, the back end. I've seen people repeat it. So I don't think there's a particular formula. Okay, that's helpful. I just was curious because it sounded like there may be a sequential kind of aspect to this, but it, it makes sense that there may not be, depending on the individual. I like that process. Yes, but that can be a problem sometime as you work your way through manuals. There's not always a sequence not always linear. And one of the things I like about our approach is just what the chaplain just said, that it comes about, it's recommended, it's referred to at the point that we deem it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's dealing with the client needs. And that's, that's again, a social work concept here. One of the other things then, You've talked about the program in general, but what I'd like to do is have you, Clyde and John, you guys tell me, what are the key components of the program? Tom, before I do that, I do want to go back to just one little piece here, if I may. John mentioned earlier that we do this with a chaplain and a mental health provider. And uh, so what I want want to say is Search for Meaning is driven by the chaplain, but it's important to have the mental health provider there. And, and let me share with you why, why, where I see this from. Somebody could walk to my office as a pastoral counselor, and it's not within my scope to diagnose PTSD. And I could say, I think you, you may have some symptoms of PTSD. They probably wouldn't buy that, but if they went to a psychologist and they said, mm, yeah, you have PTSD, they say, oh, okay. Well, vice versa, I think when it comes to these existential and spiritual wounds, especially if someone who holds a deep religious understanding or a pretty much spiritual view, Judeo-Christian view of creation, then they're going to see the chaplain as an authority. And I think many times the mental health folks can address some of these pieces like forgiveness and grief and some of these pieces. But if it gets down to that compromise of belief, I think they look to the chaplain or a clergy person as that authority. And I think that's the reason it's important that we have both the mental health and and the chaplain together. And then also as a chaplain, if they start getting over into some of the mental health pieces, I've got the experts sitting, the subject matter experts sitting there right with me. That makes perfect sense. Okay. So again, I really think so far you guys have been providing a lot of good information on the program, but now again, if you could give me some information about the key components so our listeners would have some idea about what is actually in the program. Okay, well, let me start then. When we talked earlier, week one, we actually got into it some. We define religion and spirituality. We define the concept of the shattered soul, give the person some, some places to buy into to where we're going. And then I began talking about the spiritual journey as a process of spiritual reformation or making meaning out of or within their traumatic event. And so with the concept that if we have this spiritual formation and it gets shattered, then we have the ability to put it back together. So that creates some sense of hope. And then we talk about what I call the significant or signature spiritual wound of PTSD, and that's trust. 
individually in my office or in a group when I say to a veteran who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which by the way is a disorder of recovery, it's a disorder of recovery, the inability to bounce back, I say, who do you trust? And almost 99.9% of the time, the person will say, no one, and not even myself on a bad day. So that's that shattered trust that we're beginning to help them restore. So we kind of introduce that. Again, this is all part of helping them identify and begin to see the path we're moving to. The other piece on week one that we, we talk about, and I say to them, the goal is what I want you to do is learn contentment. And I define contentment as the absence of inner conflict, because this is really what's going on with the spiritual piece of the PTSD wounding. Is there that compromise of oneself, one's belief, one's perspective of the world? And so what we're hoping to do is give you tools that you can address that and resolve those conflicts so you can come to this sense of of contentment in life. That's pretty much the first week. John, would you want to add anything to that? Yes. Picking up where you made comments about trust, what counselors and therapists, and I'm sure chaplains need the most from people they're working with is often the most difficult thing for them to give, and that is trust. But in the classes and in the program, we ask them to investigate, take a look at their beliefs, all their beliefs, not just religious beliefs or existential, all beliefs, and ask the question, can you rely Can you fall back on them? If not, then we're going to help you work on developing a new belief system. It's going to be your construction. It's going to be your belief system, but we're going to facilitate that. One that you can rely on and fall back on in the future. So if we're talking about spiritual foundation, and usually nobody says it better than patience, one man said that uh, the trauma was an earthquake and his flashbacks were the waves that come after, aftershocks. And I thought that was really spoke to, and I keep saying this over and over, the depth that we're trying to reach. So other components that you want to speak to? Sure. A second component uh, that we begin to move toward is then, okay, we, you're talking about rebuilding a, a spiritual formation. How do we do that? And we have two or three components that are a part of that second week in developing that. One is, I start out talking about blame. And the concept here is beginning to take responsibility for one's own thoughts, feelings, actions, and to stop blaming. And it really, it falls off around any kind of recovery language. The first step to recovery is that I've got to own whatever it is, whether it's alcoholism or drug use or whatever addiction I may be having, I have to be first willing to own that and how it's impacted my life. And what I add to that is the first spiritual piece is I've got to own this and stop blaming others. And that's kind of a, a natural part of, of humanity. When things go wrong, we either, you know we blame God or blame someone else. And so it's, it's first getting them to recenter upon themselves and take responsibility for the recovery. The second part we talk about is, is control. What can we really control in life? I come from the mindset, and, and I offer this, that the truth is the only thing that we absolutely can control is the moment in which we exist. Everything else is management. We can manage our lives. We can, we can manage our relationships, manage our money. We can manage our work. Uh, we can manage our recreation. We can manage multiple things, but really the sense of control. That's important. 
because with post-traumatic stress, it is that loss of control that is shattering to the individual. And so often with folks with post-traumatic stress, you see them being very controlling or very avoiding. And avoidance is the lifeblood of PTSD. And so to begin to help them understand, what is it that I can control? Well, I can control my choices. I control how I, I react in this moment in this piece. And then another element we talk about is, in its, um, is just learning to be still, learning to sit with that anxiety, be still and know that spirituality isn't about doing it. Often when people I say, tell me about your spirituality, they'll get over to the religious side. They'll either say, well, I'm not very religious or, you know, I haven't prayed as much as I used to. Or I don't go to church or to synagogue or I don't do those things as much as I used to. And I'll pause and I'll say, you know, this isn't about, uh, it's not spiritual doing, it's spiritual being. And so I'm wanting them to just learn to relax and begin to set with this. And then the th fourth piece there that we look at is developing a personal mantra something that will help them in the future when they begin to get this anxiety around their spirituality, that they have something that will center them spiritually, much like we use them for helping people ground emotionally and mentally from the psychological side. This is kind of a way to, to ground oneself from the spiritual side. And then we start talking about beliefs. What do I believe? And what has been the basis of my beliefs? And that pretty well runs that uh, second session. Okay. I have a couple of pieces. In going through your program, there are two things that I think our listeners would like to hear you address, Clyde and John, and that has to do with the anger aspect because, again, as a disabled combat veteran, I know where that comes from, and I understand that I have that anger. My friends that came from Vietnam all had that. And the second thing is that, especially for the Vietnam veterans who are now aging, the issue of grief. Do you guys want to speak a little bit about how your program looks at those two elements? I'll let the chaplain lead off, as he's been doing, and then, yes, I have some comments. Okay, so I approach anger from a little bit different aspect. So what we talk about is I said, well, there's anger management, but there's anger resolution. Anger management is important because anger management keeps us out of jail, right? There is actually a, a spiritual component for that. You know, be angry and don't do something stupid is the way, you know, that's an interpretation of scripture. So we have to learn to manage our anger to keep us from making other poor choices. But as I began doing this work and thought about it, I thought, you know, I don't want them just to walk around managing their anger the rest of their life. Because I think anger spiritually keeps us separated, both from ourselves, from others, from the universe, from our higher powers. So I began to investigate and talk about doing not just anger management, but let's do anger resolution. And I developed this just very simple five-step process. And, and the first two steps are actually anger management. The first thing you do is separate yourself from the situation. The second piece is, is you pause. You take a deep breath. You take a, a moment to relax. Because what happens, and with veterans, with PTSD, whether they often talk about this in their treatment, they, their anger can come, go from zero to 10 in a flash. And so there is a physiological response that goes with that. So that just taking a pause, relax, take some deep breaths, do some deep breathing. The other part of that is what gets separated, and I think this is with trauma in general, 
is our feelings and our thoughts get disconnected. And when I'm healthy, I'm only healthy when I am both thinking and feeling. And if I get too much into my feelings, I'm not healthy. I get too much into my head, I'm not healthy. And so this calming down is a moment for us to kind of come back and get both the head and the emotions beginning to work together. The third step then becomes the core piece here. And and we actually have them do homework around this. And I will say, you know, when we get angry, there is why am I angry, but also what am I feeling? And often what I'll do in a group is I will say somebody got an incident where maybe you'd be willing to share with the group right now of something that's angered you in just the last little bit. Almost guarantee in a PTSD group, I'm going to have someone raise their hand and say, oh, yeah, you're on the way here. And so they will share the incident. And I say, okay, well, that's why you were angry. Let, and I'll use this as an example. Somebody cut you off on the way here. A driver cut you off. And so I say, okay, well, what did you feel? Now, almost immediately they'll say, well, I was irritated or pissed off or upset. or And, and I say, well, that's another anger word. You're still using words to describe anger. What I'm looking for is a deeper feeling. What did you feel? What what do you feel when someone cut you off in the car or cut you off in the line or or whatever? And they'll start looking for that. And sometimes a group will jump in and help them. But let's say they identify disrespect. And if it's a Vietnam veteran, I guarantee you they're going to identify disrespect because that's one of the major wounds of, of Vietnam veterans. My next question to them, if they say, yeah, you know, it, it feels disrespectful when people cut me off. And my question to them is, go back and tell me the first time in your life that you felt disrespected. And they'll pause for a moment, and it's really interesting. Almost immediately, they'll go back to as early as four, five, and six years old. In fact, one day, John, John, you can share that. You fed into that a little bit one day, didn't you? I did. It was when I was about to enter the first grade. The first grade teacher thought it was uh, would be a positive experience to try to connect with me. And she said, I was in the hall, and she said, would you like to see a monkey? Well, at that age, who wouldn't want to see a monkey? So I said, yeah. She took me into the room and pointed to a full-length mirror in which was my image. Now, her intention and all was probably really great. But I have to say, that really hurt. And uh, to this day, if I talk about it for a period of time or think about it, I can drum up that hurt still. Mm-hmm. And so, so what I do then is once they identify that moment, then I'll lead them forward. And I say, okay, so thinking of a, a significant time, not a, not a minor situation, what was there another significant moment in your life where you felt disrespected? And I keep doing that. I move them all the way to where they're at currently. And then I'll say to the group, here's kind of the theory behind this, is we experience these woundings, and, and I call them spiritual woundings, emotional woundings. We experience these woundings through life, and often we never really attend to them. And so what happens is around that feeling of disrespect is some anger, and it doesn't get resolved. And then another wound comes, and we wrap more anger around that feeling, and more anger around that feeling, more anger around that feeling, so that what happens is someone cuts someone off in line, and they're ready to go fight. And what you have is what I say, a 10,000-volt response to a 10-volt situation. And I say, have you seen that? And almost everyone will, oh, yeah. Has that happened to you? Oh, yeah, 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 that happens to me. And I said, okay, so here's what we need to do now. This week, I want you to go during the day sometime, I want you to sit down and, and, and reflect, have I been angry today? And why was I angry? And what was I feeling? 
And over the week, what we're hoping they'll end up doing is they're going to probably come up with three or four feelings that tend to get hooked over and over again. Betrayal, disrespect, abandonment, some major key woundings. And so then what you do is you take each one of those key the feelings where you realize there's been some significant wounding around and you identify those moments when it happened. And those become the moments that we'll get back to later in making peace. But you have to identify the places in their life where they need to make the peace. Now, the next step. So that's the fourth step. That's the clarification piece. That's beginning to understand, you know, where am I getting hooked? Once they can really identify that and really begin working on, say, the wounds around disrespect, betrayal, abandonment, et cetera, then in the moment, if they feel disrespected, they hopefully can learn to pause and say, wow, I just felt disrespected. First of all, this isn't about all my past wounding. This is the moment. And then they can give an appropriate response because there's things in life that require a response of anger. There's things that need to elicit anger in us as human beings, but getting a a healthy approach to it. John, I'll let you follow up. I really think that both are important, as the chaplain said, the management and also the resolution of anger. We're working at people's core. And if an individual sees themselves getting angry all the time or others telling you, you know, you're just angry all the time, they start thinking that's their core. At my core, I'm just an angry person. And they might not like angry people themselves. So now they don't like themselves by telling them to look, get deeper, see what's underneath that. They'll find that what might be their core has more to do with fear and hurt than it does anger. And as he said, dealing with the here and now, what just happened and what should be my response be to that? When the person does that, even if it's for seconds, it means that their first action was in, not out. They went in to try to figure out what the heck's going on, as opposed to just lashing out. Two quotes that I've always found helpful when working with people who had anger problems. One of them says, anger addicts the body to adrenaline and the soul to bitterness. And before I do the next quote, I think the second quote illustrates that in our approach, we deal with all systems of thought. It's not just one faith-based. It's not... It's across the board. And one particular belief system said of anger, anger is like a hunting dog that does not oppose the hunter who trained it. So what we're talking about is learning how to do something to and with anger instead of it always doing something to and with you. Okay, thank you for that. It was very, very helpful and interesting. I hope our listeners will also find it interesting. I'm going to move past the grief one. I want to make sure we talk about anything in terms of the folks who have taken this. How are they responding to your course? And what happens to the participants once they complete your program? If uh, you guys could address that, it would be great. So, Tom, let me actually... I, you know, I hate that we're moving past grief and forgiveness because they're such big pieces. Let me give you an example because you say what happens What happens to people. So let me tell you a story real quick of a grief story. So I have this veteran who had gone through the program, but he was still struggling with some things, began to come back and see me individually, wasn't finding his contentment. 
And he, as often I hear, I will hear people say to me more often in an individual session, I've never, chaplain, I've never told anyone this before. These are Vietnam veterans and we're 40, 45 years down the road and they've held this secret. So that's where all the shame and guilt come from. And they begin to tell this story. Well, this veteran told his story and it had to do with the fatality over in, in Vietnam and so forth. And he kind of thought, because that's where his nightmares were. And he kind of thought that was the core of it. Well, actually, as we begin to talk, he had some early wounding with the death of his father at a young age. So as we got through working, I, as I often use a letter, a uh, grief letter. So I said, you know, I think it'd be helpful if you wrote two letters. Write one to the young man and his family and write a letter to your dad. When he came back in, he said, you know, Chaplain, interestingly enough, he said it was the letter to my dad that made the difference. So that was his core wounding. And what happened in combat was an additional wound on top of the core wound. But here you say what happens. Go out another month or so. He came back in again. And he said, man, I'm really doing well. He says, I very seldom have the nightmare anymore. And even if I do, it's all I do is see the face for a moment. So there was an improvement there. Then he began to talk about a couple of incidents that had just happened that week. And he says, you know what? I've been caught a little off guard because he says, so-and-so happened. And I found myself crying. And then he described another situation where the same thing happened. And I said, that's wonderful. What had happened, he was literally, he couldn't share or open up or allow himself to feel those finer emotions. As he resolved his anger and his grief and so forth, he was now beginning to respond in a very human, natural way that we all do when there's losses or moments of joy or, or whatever. So those deeper feelings once resolved are those more heavy feelings, painful feelings are resolved then they can begin to experience that. So that's what I see coming out of these groups. That's great. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to say? I was going to add something in terms of what happens after they leave our program. We're talking about a recovery program. So that 10 sessions, 10 classes, we believe is a very good beginning. But the uh, recovery journey goes on. So we encourage them to keep following up on that. It's interesting also that the classic 12-step program, the 12th step says, having had, I'm paraphrasing, having had a spiritual experience, we now reach out to others. They had no qualms about identifying the level of treatment and what their program was all about. It was spirituality. And if I could just share one quick thing that a patient said, because patients always say it better than anybody following what we considered to be some successful treatment and a good prognosis from my perspective, this patient said, I can see the light through the door of intimacy, the door that gets you out of the room with no doors, which is PTSD. So when we're talking about being able to see the light, that has spiritual implications. We're talking about guidance. We're talking about the lightness of the heart where things are not so heavy that you carry around. When we're talking about the, through the door of intimacy, this can be an indication that maybe that person is ready to reach out again and going to be willing to have people reach towards them. And when they talk about a room with no doors, this really talks about deep depression that you can't get out of, a hole that you can't get out of. So I just found his statement to incorporate our whole program which deals with emotions and spiritual issues. 
Okay, you know, I have a question for you guys. Are you thinking of potentially extending this for folks who come back and say, I need a booster shot or something to that effect? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a, like a relapse type issue. So let me speak to, the, to what we've experienced so far. So one thing, we do have an aftercare group. Currently, the aftercare group that I'm leading meets every two weeks. And so veterans can come back who've been through the program. They can join this group. And typically what we do then is we deal more on current issues. I kind of like them bring the issue. But what I do is as they're describing the issue, I'll pull these tools that I have taught them and they've learned. I'll pull them up and, and show them how they apply again in the moment. So just you're constantly teaching, you know. It's that old thing, you don't know what you don't know, now you know you don't know, I'm learning and now I'm, I'm proficient. Well, we're teaching these tools, if you will, in this 10-week session, but by no way do they walk out of these proficient. And so we have these aftercare groups. The other is, is I always make sure to invite the veteran. You know, if you're still struggling, you have something you want to talk about, you're open to come and see me individually. Typically, when I have someone who's done the group that then comes to see me individually, that's where I hear the question, Chaplain, I've never told, or the statement, I've never told anyone else this. So they've got a, a secret, and in the darkness, that secret becomes the monster. And so them being able to finally voice this brings it to the light, and that's where I really begin to see the healing for some folks who were stuck around something that really compromised their moral and, and spiritual belief system. The third aspect is, is we actually let people repeat. I had a young lady who either three or four times went through the group, and at each time she got to a different wound and to a deeper level. So we leave it fairly open for people to continue the process. Yeah, that's interesting, and that follows generally what happens in addiction treatment as well. So I think that's a, a nice approach in allowing folks to retake it because as you say, they may pick up something each time they do it, and that certainly can be helpful. You know, Tom, I want to go back and, and mention one other thing, too, if I may. When we, you know, anger is a big core piece of this, and I think anger is, a, is very much a spiritual issue, because anger keeps, if I have anger, it keeps me out of my contentment. And so we had introduced the contentment piece early, and as we're doing the anger, I always make the statement, I would make the statement, anger and contentment can't exist in the same room. Just like light and darkness, they can't exist together. And John would often go over and flip the light off and on just to kind of give them a physical understanding. But that's true. And, and, but it brings us back to our goal. So I have to resolve this anger. I resolve this anger by going back and looking at this wounding and working through my grief and working to a place of letting go and forgiveness so that I can reach the goal of contentment. Now, I may still get angry, and I may be drawn out of my contentment for the moment, but if I now have the tools to get back to that place. Tom, this is Vincent. One of the things we didn't get to is feedback that we have from those who completed the program. I think Clyde and John gave some feedback just from working with folks, but we do have some research-based feedback. As I said before, uh, we conducted qualitative study and did interviews be for the group and then after the group. So I have some feedback of, uh, I'll just summarize some key points. We received a lot of feedback after the group, but I'll say a few things of what folks that were in our study told us after the group. So one thing that came out is that 
after the 10 session group, participants were at various stages of change. So some came out of the group and they were at a contemplation stage. So in other words, from taking the group, they were at a place where they gained insight into some spiritual wounds that they were experiencing and the impact that it was having on their life. An example would be a person who gained insight that uh, they're dealing with anger issues or having difficulty forgiving. But these folks weren't at the point where they were able to make any significant change, but at least they were gaining some insight. Some other folks were at the experimentation phase. So they had gained insight into some of their spiritual wounds and they were in the process of working toward or planning changing some of these negative thoughts, feelings, and behaviors associated with the trauma. And so an example would be someone who recognized that they had a negative self-identity and they started planning on how they would change that, planning for ways to reconnect with their deeper self or redefining who they are. So in addition to those two stages, a lot of folks that took the group were actively engaged in change and shifting some things around spiritual wounding. So I'll just give you a few brief examples. Whereas before the group, several veterans were immersed in guilt and shame associated with trauma, particularly with killing that took place in combat. And then after the group, many of these folks experienced some kind of shift. And we tried to look into the mechanisms. How did this shift occur? And so a couple of the main mechanisms that we were able to identify include reframing and normalizing. So in other words, through going through the group, they were able to reframe their trauma and go from complete self-blame to being open to the idea that they were in the context of war and they did what they had to do. And as far as normalizing, the idea of sharing what they experienced and how they were feeling and, and the guilt and shame they were carrying, sharing that with peers and finding out that many of their peers felt the same way, that also brought some relief. Another thing came out is related to forgiveness. So many of the veterans had made a shift in this area. And forgiveness goes to forgiveness of self, forgiveness of other people, and also feeling that they're forgiven by their higher source. And part of how that happened was also related to being in a group and sharing what had occurred with others. And when they realized that their peers were not looking upon them with a judgmental lens, that helped them to be open to the idea that their higher source forgives them. If other people could forgive them, then it would only make sense that God would forgive them also. And then through that, they started being more forgiving of their self and, and other people. So those are some of the things we saw in the qualitative findings when we interviewed folks post-group. I'll mention briefly that we've also been collecting some pilot data. And we've been doing this for the purpose of program improvement, program evaluation. And so we've been administering some measures, including the PTSD checklist, PCL5, and the spiritual injury scale, and also the brief religious coping scale. And I'll share very briefly what we found. We did pair sample t-tests for each of these measures, and there was a significant decrease in PTSD symptoms from baseline before they took the group to post-group. Also with the spiritual injury scale, 
again, there was a significant decrease in spiritual injury scores. And the spiritual injury scale, that's really important because it measures a lot of the things that Search for Meaning Group is targeting, uh, including guilt, anger, grief, lack of meaning, feeling despair and hopeless, or feeling that a life for God has been unfair or religious doubt, disbelief, that kind of thing. So veterans were able to improve in, in those areas. And then with the brief religious coping scale, there's two subscales, positive religious coping and negative religious coping. Veterans did not show improvement in positive religious coping. Oh, they showed some improvement, but it wasn't significant. But there was a significant decrease in negative religious coping from baseline to post-group. So what this kind of shows, it's early indicators that the group is targeting many of the things that we are hoping that, that it targets. And with that being said, we are in the process of applying for further grants to do a full-scale intervention study on the search for meaning intervention. Tom, can I say to you also, if I may, and there may be something out there, and it's my lack of ignorance if there is, but our search has found that there really isn't an evidence-based treatment that specifically addresses this spiritual, existential, moral wounding. A lot's being written, and we're you know we're in that research discovery stage, and so that's where I feel very hopeful also because some of the early indicators are that this really could be developed and, and hopefully be an evidence-based uh, treatment that we could share more widely. Yeah, I would agree with you. I don't know of anything specific to post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, they do have some with respect to addictions, but not with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think this is this is really promising. I mean, the results are encouraging. Uh, I hope you do get the grant. And again, I really enjoyed this talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to Dr. Clyde Angel, John Sullivan, and Dr. Vincent Starnino discuss spiritual injury and military trauma on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.